Today we have an opportunity to move from one kind of teaching to another kind of teaching. And Peter does this very dramatically and with some very strong language and with also some very tender-hearted language. As we're going to see, we've just concluded a set of pretty heavy theological training. We have the theology around who we are in Christ. So we have looked at the theology of Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We have looked at uh, extensively of what he has done and that he was uh, ordained before the foundation. We were going all the way back into chapter 1. We have extensively looked at the theology of our faith. We have examined that and we are uh, instructed certainly and, and encouraged by it, but uh, it's not just for our head knowledge. It's just not so that I know these things and I can uh, meditate upon them. That's fine, but that's not the extent of it. And so what Peter does now is he's going to transition us into the latter half of the book, which is predominantly about application. It is, what do I do with this information? I have this wonderful information. The information is, is who Jesus Christ is and the wonder of what he has done for me, the privileged position that I have before him now as his child, being carefully crafted and fitted into the building of God, being granted a priesthood, being called a people, a nation. I have this, this wondrous effect of the salvation offered by Jesus Christ upon my life. Uh, and I understand that, whether I, I experience it or not fully, I at least understand it having studied these passages. We have seen it being uh, Peter developing this out of the teaching of Christ to him, out of the Old Testament, and we have seen that, that he has really just put this together as a clear theology of what he was taught from Christ himself and from the Old Testament law and the prophets. So we have this masterful uh, theology lesson that we have taken weeks and weeks to plow through and to understand. And now we are going to transition. And the transition here happens in uh, verse 11 of, of 1 Peter 2. And we transition into the latter half, the application. And what we're going to find is that overwhelmingly the application of these principles of our, your relationship with God is centered upon your relationship with other people. We don't often think of that as the application of theology, but in fact it is very much so the case for Peter that he, in his concept of the Christian life is not a personal thing, it is a group thing. It is something that we do together. And so we will find, as we move through this, uh, that we're going to find relationships with the world, with authorities in our life, with, uh, in the workplace or in the place you serve. If, uh, a lot of you don't think you're slaves, but we'll get to that. We'll find your slavery and who you're serving. Uh, we'll talk about that. And within your family, uh, within your church, all of these relationships, Peter is now going to explore and they are all the outworking of your relationship with God that we understand theologically. So now that I have a personal relationship with God, and we share that relationship, remember we ended last week talking about 
the community of faith, that these are, are plural words of who we are. We are a nation, a people, not a person. You're a people, you're a nation, you're a group, that we are a, a family of God. And so we call each other brother and sister, and we, and we relate to each other, and we can do that whether we are uh, spatially near each other or distant from one another, we recognize the relationship is there. Well, Peter now wants to put traction to your theology. You have a relationship with God. You're well fitted in the temple of God. You're the priests of God, the priesthood of God. You're the nation of God. You are his, his peculiar people, his, his, his special people. Well, what does that look like? And again, Peter is going to talk a tiny little bit about personal righteousness. And then he's going to take that and develop it very much into your relationships. And I would contend that we largely have flipped that emphasis in Christendom. That we have made personal righteousness the majority and relational righteousness the minority. That is, that we haven't really focused on the fact that we have a, a corporate, a group responsibility to be righteous. Not only toward one another, but as a testimony to the world, as we're going to see uh, in our families, that the idea of individual righteousness isn't lost, but it is, but is best expressed within the context of relationships. And in fact, we're going to be studying this out extensively. Does that mean your personal work for righteousness uh, doesn't need to be going. Well, it does. And the Bible does talk about it. We're going to talk about it today. Uh, but we're going to set it in the context of your relationships, as Peter does here. And so we come to verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and we find a very precious term uh, that he confronts his people with, that Peter is confronting us with, a very tender-hearted term. Uh, I had a pastor, my wife's pastor growing up, Pastor Turner, and, and he used this term extensively in all of his preaching. Whenever he got to the admonition part of his preaching, he would use the word beloved. Beloved, 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 beloved. I, I heard beloved pretty much multiple times every sermon under his ministry. Uh, that was the term he picked up. Of course, John uses that term extensively. Peter here uses it. And remember who we're talking. We're talking to the man who was confronted by Jesus Christ with the question, do you love me? Are we the beloved? And so we are beloved of God. We understand that God so loved us that he sent his son. We understand that theologically. But now Peter turns, he says, listen, my relationship with you is that we, you are my beloved. Just as God has loved me, now we are called upon to love one another. And this is the term he's going to use. We're going to explore that a little bit later this today, but mostly next week as we get into the elements of, of what our public testimony does and its impact and, and why we have that. But we're going to also pick that up a little bit later on, several weeks from now, when we're going to talk about uh, the relationship within the church. And that's coming for some time. Uh, and so we find him starting off with this term. So once he transitions from doctrine to application, he inserts this word, beloved. I'm not trying to hammer on you. I am as a loving parent, as a brother in Christ, wanting to admonish you. Uh, 
Uh, and even he's going to even say, I beg. I beg. I mean, this is, this is how important it is to him. I love you and I beg of you that you bring these truths into practice in your life. Because just knowing this information and having possessors of this information, of this relation with God, uh, is not enough. God demands more than that. Uh, it is a selfish thing to hold that kind of knowledge and that relationship and think it is just a personal uh, journey that you go on on your own. That is really very foreign to the scriptures. And in fact, Jesus Christ, in his relationship with Peter, says, well, if you love me, feed my sheep. Immediately transferring, if you have a relationship with me that's loving, now you have a responsibility towards others. And that is the immediate expression. You say you love God, and John, of course, picks this up too. You say you love God. How can you say you love God if you don't love your brethren? And so we saw it in 1 John, Second, we see it extensively, this concept. Peter here picks it up immediately. And so we're going to look at three facets of, of uh, well, we're going to have to look at a lot of facets. It's going to take me weeks to go through these verses. Um, but we're going to look at your personal righteousness, because it is a part of this equation. If you don't have that, your relationships are going to be marred at best. They're going to be broken, they're going to be strained, they're going to be, what's the term, dysfunctional. Uh, pretty much all relationships are dysfunctional without Christ. Let's just put that out there. The norm for mankind is to have uh, broken and strained and injured relationships. That's the norm. Jesus Christ comes in and should resolve that. But only if we put our theology into practice in our lives, which we're going to see. We're going to look at our, our relationship with the world. We're going to look at what it does not only for them, but also what it does for us. There is a component of this that is beneficial to us. And then also our relationship uh, with authorities. We're going to talk about that. We're going to go through each of these relationships in here. Uh, one of the verses that's going to be our key verse, it's going to drive a lot of this, is verse 17 of this chapter. And so... Peter summarizes some of these relationships in verse 17 in four categories. And we're going to look at these four categories. Uh, we're going to really look only at half of one today. Uh, but verse 17 says, honor all. And your translation may have all people. Uh, that is an added thing to give clarity, but it's honor all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. And these are the four commands we have here summarized. This is a summary verse that uh, reflects what had already been spoken. It reflects also what and, and bespeaks uh, what is coming. And so we're looking at these four areas that we're going to honor. We're going to find what honor is, what love is, and honor, of course, is used twice, and what fear is. You talked about fearing God a little bit in Sunday school this morning, uh, but we're going to be developing that. We, really, we already have, because we've already talked about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, what it means to bring ourselves into alignment with him, recognizing that either I conform to him or I am broken by him. Either I make myself align with him or he will shatter me and crush me. And that is a fearful condition 
not only about awing and respecting, that's the positive side, but also there is the fearsome side. And, and if you don't catch that out of the Old Testament, you're not reading well enough because with every blessing, there's also a curse that has to be spoken. Either you do this or that. And there is no middle ground because God is not apathetic towards us. Correct? And so you're either one or the other, so you should have a fear of God. And we have seen that played out in our theology and born there that we have this understanding of this chief cornerstone, you better accept him, you better conform yourself to him, or he will destroy you. The very entity that can deliver you will judge you. Do not confuse that. And some in history have done that. They, oh, God is love, God is love, God is love, and then we can't allow God to be judge. And if he is judge, he's not a fair judge because he doesn't really penalize evil. And that isn't right. We know that today. So we're going to develop this. So we're going to begin with honor all. And again, we're going to link it to the, and develop it through our personal righteousness. Let's read verse 11. 1 Peter 2, it says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. And so we begin here by his invoking personal righteousness. In verse 11, he picks it up again, as we saw later on, uh, in verse 16, that we are freedom, but we're not going to have it as a cloak. We're not going to do evil. I'm not going to use my liberty as a cloak for vice. And we're going to go to the book of Galatians here shortly, and, because that's one of the books that centers in on that idea. You are free, but that doesn't mean you're free to do anything, because we have a boundary, and that boundary is the love of God. And we're going to talk about, and the fear of God, we're going to talk about that as we go through all of these passages as one of the fundamental elements of our relationships. So personal righteousness, this is where he begins this statement. It's, it, is, it is the first expression, it is not the dominant expression, but it is the first expression of a right relationship with God. So as you gather here together, claiming a right relationship with God, one of the things that Peter comes to you and says, Beloved, I beg you, you have called yourself sojourners. You call yourself pilgrims. You say, I am no longer of this world. I am of the world to come. I am no longer of my father, the devil, that I was once a follower of. Now I am, God is my father. And I come to him. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am now transformed from being a sinner to a saint. And you claim that. You claim to be sojourners. You claim that this world is not my home, but I'm just a passing through. And we sing the songs. We, we declare these statements. And we have our hopes stayed on uh, a kingdom to come, uh, led by a rock not made by human hands. We look forward to all of that. 
You claim all of that. Now, beloved, you who claim all this, who have this benefit from the powerful working of Jesus Christ that we've been studying for weeks. Now, here's the first, not the, not the greatest, but the first. This is the beginning of it. And we're going to see that. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. That you are engaged now as a part of the body of Christ. You recognize that there is a separation. You have been sanctified. That's the word set apart. Well, set apart from what? Well, set apart from all that is of this world. That all of the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that they, are, that they are things that you are called away from. You are set to distance yourself from to you, so you can cling to the righteousness of Christ. And so we are sanctified ones. We are holy ones. And he calls us in that theological section, you are a holy nation. You are a holy priesthood. That is, you are set apart. And therefore, it is time to recognize that's who I once was. I was a sinner, but now I am something else. And that's going to cause a problem because you are very good at being a sinner. <laughs> you, were, you were raised in it. Even if you were raised in a Christian home, you were capable and, and quite uh, proficient at being a sinner. All of us are. Uh, because of our sin nature, uh, because of the way this world is and, and the, the influences that are there, the temptations that exist, we're just really good at being sinners. And now I've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I'm called to be set apart. And Peter says, listen, you need to abstain. That's a complete rejection of this. That's a complete no, zero participation in. Complete abstinence. Hopefully we understand the word abstain. It doesn't mean that I'm going to play with it. Uh, if, I, if I am a, an abstinence in terms of alcohol, how much alcohol do I drink? Zero. Otherwise, I am somewhere else. I can call myself a social drinker, which means that I drink a little. I'm a stress drinker, I'm, and pretty soon you're just a drinker. All right? Well, we understand abstain means that I'm going to completely set myself apart from it. That it is no longer. So we call um, in, in other aspects of our life, I'm going to abstain from that. Uh, and so we have a term teetotaler. Uh, that means I, I only drink tea. I don't drink anything else. Uh, it's totally tea. That's the, that's the hardest stuff I drink, is that tea, that, that oh man, that stuff at Chick-fil-A, that sweet tea, that's the hardest stuff I drink, right? Nothing harder than tea. I'm a teetotaler. I abstain entirely from that. Well, for Peter, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts, that we're going to be separate, we're holy, and now I'm going to engage in a personal battle to completely transform my life that these things that are that are in my history these things that every sinner around me participates in it freely and seems to be guilt free in doing it that I am going to completely abstain I'm going to do that in all these areas not just why I just picked out one but we're going to do it in all of these fleshly lusts and we're going to look at 
some of that. Let's get an understanding that this is not an easy thing. What word does Peter use about this? It's a war. You are engaged in a war. Now, I don't know about you, but my understanding of war is that when you're in the company of your enemy, you don't let your guard down. Correct? When you're in the company of your enemy, that you recognize there's great danger. And generally, during war, you try to avoid the company of your enemy because you know what that's going to entail. One of you is going to have to do injury to the other. That's the purpose. That's what makes you enemies in war. And so you try to avoid that. And so it says these things are warring against your soul, your very soul, the one that you have committed to Jesus Christ, set apart and made holy. Fleshly lusts are the enemy. Let's look at Romans chapter 7. Turn there very quickly. Let's just look at, if you, and, and don't feel like I'm not um, applying this to myself. We're going to see Paul apply it to himself. Paul is dealing from, with, and going to share with us a little bit of what it is like to deal this war. Because he had the same war. Let's begin in verse 7 of chapter 7. I'm going to read a lengthy passage through to the end of the chapter. So we just get an idea of this war for your soul in terms of sin. Your lusts. Your own personal desires for things that you know are contrary to God's word. You know that God is not pleased with it. And yet you keep returning to it like a dog to its vomit. That's a biblical thing, not mine. Verse 7 says, What shall we say that is lost sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the command, produced in me all manner of evil desire. There is that concept of lust. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That's our condition without Christ. Sold under sin. We are in bondage, slavery. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. How many times have you come to that point in your life you're saying I keep doing I hate this stuff but I just keep doing it I hate what it does to me I hate what it does to our relationships I hate what it does uh, in my life and, and but I keep going back to it this is the war Paul goes on and says if then I do what I will not to do I agree with the law that it is good but now it is no longer I who do it but the sin that dwells in me for I know that in me that is in my flesh remember we're talking about fleshly lusts nothing good dwells. There's no redeeming part of fleshly lust. Let me just share with that. Nothing good dwells there. We try to 
rationalize and make excuses for it in our, in our pursuit of personal righteousness, you cannot see anything of value in fleshly pursuits. You must recognize that. In them, nothing good dwells. There is no redeeming value in any of them. There's nothing that we can point to and rationalize and say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. And I hear Christians talk like that. Well, you know, we can't expect to... No, I'm at war. This is what makes those lusts my enemy. My desires, my own desires for those things that I know aren't pleasing to God is in fact the enemy. Not just the activity of that displeases God, but the desire for the activity. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about fleshly lust. The will, the desire that overwhelms my will to cause me to do that which I know doesn't please God. And so my war isn't just with not doing those things. My war really internally in my soul is within my will. My will versus my desires. And I say, hey, aren't those the same thing? No. My fleshly desires versus my spiritual will. I sit here today and I say, I want to please God in everything I do say, my countenance, my, my attitudes, all of that, all my relationships we're going to see. And then I, I, and I know cognitively in my head that these certain things are destructive to that. There is no good in them. And yet I find myself wanting that. We call these things an addiction so that we can uh, take the pressure off of them being, I'm just an addict, what can I do? Everything, you can do everything. As we're going to see, Paul's not giving up. Sounds like it's a really bad situation. Uh, Sin dwelling in me is doing it. For I know, and verse 18 is where we stop. (laughs) For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. And the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He repeats that again. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I want to do right, but evil is still hanging in there. And it seems to have a lot of punch, power. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my member, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. This is the condition that Peter is addressing. And this is what Paul tells us he is struggling with. And the law helps him to understand the activity that, that God isn't pleased with. But it, is the, but it sets the line. Here's where the war is. The war isn't really in the activity. The war is in the desires versus the knowledge. I know I want to please God. And I really, if I'm honest, I know what pleases God. But I also know that there are things in my life that don't please God. The question is, are you ready to go to war with those things? Because they're at war with you. 
They're at war with your spiritual walk, whether you recognize it or not. Now, I don't know if you recognize how dangerous it is for someone to be at war with you and you not to know it. You're in a really tough spot when someone is, going, is at war with you and you are oblivious to that fact. If you want to know what that looks like, I invite you to study a little bit of the history of Pearl Harbor. That's what it looks like. When Japan is at war with us, but we didn't know it. Not real, we kind of did. There was a strained relationship. But we didn't know how serious they were about it. And they show up to declare war in Washington, D.C., and there's a big discussion about whether, I don't think it happened quite quickly enough, and so they ended up bombing Pearl Harbor without warning. That's what it's like. And frankly, for many Christians, we are in a Pearl Harbor environment where we aren't, don't think we're at war with our flesh, but the flesh is definitely at war with us, and we're ignorant of it. We're oblivious. We want to make excuses for our flesh. We want to say, well, we're only men. Or What do you expect? Well, I expect you to be diligent. If you know that someone's going to be attacking you, you know you're at war with them, you're going to take certain measures. We certainly would have never done what we did there if our country had recognized that there was a fleet getting ready to launch an entire waves of planes against us. I'm pretty sure Pearl Harbor would not have been chock full of boats. Do you agree with me? You're not sure. So what is our response? If we know the flesh is at war with our spirit, what measures do we take to defend ourselves that we want to serve God? And so I have to recognize that this is part of what the flesh is, and that's why Paul says, I'm going to beat my body into subjection. I'm going to have to understand that these are weaknesses that are going to debilitate me spiritually. And when they debilitate you personally, spiritually, they're going to debilitate all your relationships. They're going to put a strain on all of them. That if I can't get the upper hand in this battle of being holy, holy, holy unto the Lord, that it's not just going to be me that's defeated. It's going to be all of my relationships are going to be defeated. I'm going to be defeated in my relationships within my home, within my church, within the larger world, within the, within the community, within the workplace. I'm going to, I'm going to have broken and strained and, and just a, a wreckage of relationships around me because I didn't get this battle fought well. And so it begins here but its impact is, is much, has a much farther reach. And Paul recognizes that's why he says, I'm going to beat this body into submission because I have a war going on inside of me. And, and one of the first most important things to recognize that it is happening inside of you too. It's happening inside of me that we have this battle and that we are to be engaged in this warfare and that we do not let down our guard. And so I don't kind of let my, my guard. And if this environment, if these people, if these, if these influences from my old life damage and it, and it gives my flesh the upper hand, my desires the upper hand, then I'm going to run the other way. And Joseph gives us a great example of that, right? I run. No matter the cost. If I have to lose some clothing along the way, I'm going to run. 
I don't care if I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to run. Because it's too dangerous. Joseph, it was too dangerous for Joseph to stay in that house. He had to run. If you don't think Potiphar's wife was appealing, you didn't understand. Joseph ran. And it is necessary that we understand that Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful what? Desires or lusts. I want to serve God, but I have these desires. And we have to take precautions. We have to take measures. We have to defend ourselves in this battle. But if you don't think you're at a battle within your heart, then you've already lost. You're Pearl Harbor waiting to happen all over again. And then you come to me and go, oh, Pastor, what, I don't know what happened. I wanted to please God. But then, well, you didn't set up any precautions. You set up no defenses. You didn't set out the radar to see what was coming. You ignored it. And then you're devastated that sin has taken you captive. Now, I have taught many times that I think all of us have certain weaknesses in the area of sin that others don't. And so I don't have any problems with this area. And so it's, it's kind of empty for me to say, well, uh, you know, this doesn't tempt me. Well, it doesn't tempt me because my flesh isn't interested in that. And so it's easy to preach against that because it doesn't touch me because I have zero interest in that. But then there are other areas that may have zero interest to you that captivate me. And I want to avoid that. I want to make excuses for that. And I can even go to the Bible and find that. And I can find these, these sectors of our life. And all of us have some that we're more susceptible to and some that we're less susceptible to. But we set up defenses and we recognize, here's my weaknesses of my flesh, and now I'm going to set up these defenses. Boom, 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 boom. I'm going to set up barrier after barrier after barrier. I'm going to separate myself as many times as I can from that which is my weakest point. If I know I have a weakness, I'm going to set up not fewer barriers there, but more. This is how we protect personal righteousness so that our relationships then can be good. And Paul discusses this, but Paul really just helps us to understand there is a war. If Paul had it, I'm pretty sure you and I each have it, that same situation. But he ends by saying, thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we can serve the law of God with our mind, recognizing that our flesh is after the law of sin. Recognize that you are carrying with you a body of death. That's why we can't wait till the translation where we can get rid of this body and put on an immortal body. Get rid of this one that, that just wants to eat too much. It wants to, to talk too much. It wants to sleep too much. I don't know what your problems are. Uh, it wants to do anything too much. And we recognize these are all things that aren't pleasing to God. So there's a war. And personal righteousness is something you need to be engaged in. I want to invite you to two other texts to really help us through this war. One is going to begin, and that's Paul's writing again in Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there. One is going to begin with the personal battle. You have a personal battle. But it's going to end by the public nature of it. That is, that it is, it's not really for you to, 
think of it in, in terms of just a personal issue. It is a, a body issue, and not only for uh, the church, for Jesus Christ, but for even the unbelievers around you. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read this section, then we're going to jump to James chapter 4, and we're going to try to piece this all together. Begin verse 16 of Galatians 5. I say then, walk in the Spirit, shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There it is again. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. I wish I could be sinless. Anyone join me in that? Is that your wish? I would wish I could just live the rest of my, balance of my days without one sin to confess. Am I the only one that has that interest? Okay, thank you. A few of you. I wish I would never lose my temper ever again unless it was something really evil that then I have to pour my wrath on it like God does. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Verse 19, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is serious, people. I want you to notice in this list of lusts of the flesh, how many of them are social? How many of these are private? Oh, you're starting to build this list up. You're like, oh, oh, it's kind of hard to have jealousies privately. I think you pretty much have to have someone you're jealous of. I'm pretty sure it's hard to have contentions privately. Contentions are done socially. Hatred is not a private matter. It is a social matter. Uh, even fornication, adultery, and the words used here, dissensions, murders, uh, revelries, envy, all of these things are social things, aren't they? Overwhelming majority of these are social. And yet somehow we get the idea that I can work on, on, on personal righteousness in an isolated way inside myself without any social ramifications or influences. And it's just a lie of Satan that says you can stay at home and you can work on this with your Bible in your, and, your, and, and in prayer and that that's all you need. And then I can, in that isolation, I can achieve personal righteousness. What if I just describe for you what I've just described for you is what many, many men over the history of churches have tempted, and they have tempted it in places of cloister. Whether they become nuns or priests, uh, not really priests, but monks, they have gone into places of isolation to strive on their personal righteousness that if I can get away from the influences of the world, that then I can become less sinful, and they want to go towards isolation. And they think, well, if I, I'm not around any people, then I can't have contention with any people. But we have a problem, don't we? Where is your belovedness? Where is your love for others? Because the fruit of the Spirit is in the next few verses. And surprisingly, guess what? A lot of those are social too. Right? 
you haven't thought about the fruit of the Spirit being a social thing. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, putting them to death day by day. Crucify them. If we live in the Spirit, let us all walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you see the one another? How this passage ends with your relationships. You cannot exercise the fruit of the Spirit in isolation. And it is, I'm convinced, it is impossible to defend yourself in isolation from sin. The fact is, is that it's when we recognize that we all have these issues, that we all turn to God's Word, we can gather become, uh, here's a word that's being now used these days in politics, that we become transparent about our weaknesses and that we trust one another to set up defenses against those weaknesses. And those defenses can come in the form of instruction, of rebuke, of correction. Sound familiar? Does that list sound familiar to you? This is what we use the word of God to do in each other's lives. But you see, our world has become that I don't receive rebuke, I don't receive instruction, I don't receive correction. Because we have relativism that my way of life is truth for me and right for me and you can't judge me. And that's a form of isolation that leads to failure. You will always fail in that environment. And so, yes, your quest for personal righteousness cannot be done uh, on, on the top of a cliff in Meora, Greece. We visited those places. And those monks did incredible work to build these monasteries up on the top of these pinnacles that you can't get to without a rope. And, and they live up there, and, but it doesn't work. Because now how do you express the fruit of the Spirit? How do you ha- show love to other people? How do you show patience? How do you show kindness? How do you show goodness? How are you gentle with others? when you've isolated yourself. No, it is about one another. We need to walk in the Spirit together. This is Galatians. Let's turn to James's rendition of this. This is right before 1 Peter. James chapter 4. And again, coming from the negative to the positive, um, as Paul did largely. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. You may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. He gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. And he goes right into more information about your relationship. So he begins, he bookends this by talking about the social elements of our faith particularly in this sense with our Christian friends. We're going to be looking at that several weeks down the road. I don't know, three months, something, I don't know. Um, we're going to be looking at that. Uh, but right now we're just talking about personal righteousness in its social setting. Why are we have fighting among Christians? We have fighting it as a symptom of a disease. And the disease is a lack of personal righteousness. Because we embraced our desires of our flesh, because we embraced worldliness, because we embraced the values of Satan, let's just say it. I mean, these are the values that Satan wants you to embrace, that your flesh longs for. It goes to that. And they are entrancing. I remember reading the account of a godly, godly man, and this is way back in church history, who talks about, uh, he spoke against the Roman games. Okay, now what happened in the Romans' Colosseum? It was lewd, it was violent, all the things that you call entertainment. They called entertainment. Orgies, uh, mass bloodshed, not just of beasts, but of men. Uh, just disgusting. But they called it entertainment, just like you call it entertainment. You have it digitally there. Um, they had it physically in front of them. So he was adamantly against that. And his friends finally said, and, and, and convinced him to go in there and just come in. And, and he said, I'm not going to open my eyes. I'm not going to open my eyes. And he heard the roar and he opened his eyes. And he, what he saw, he couldn't take his eyes off of. And he described the entrancing nature of sin. That was a godly man dealing with the Roman Colosseum version of Hollywood. Rightly does the psalmist say, Lord, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes, because it's entrancing. Your flesh has such a propensity towards evil that you cannot give it access to these things without injury to your personal righteousness. So why are our churches strained? Why are relationships uh, and families, why is the divorce rate among Christians the same as the world, and sometimes even worse? Why are we have all the same? Why do, gener why do we have a generational gap within our families you know, why do we have children against parents and parents against children? Why does this happen in the Christian community? comes back to the fact that we have embraced worldliness and not fought the battle for personal righteousness. James here says, why do you have fights and wars among yourselves? This is among Christians. Why are there contentions among you? It's because of your desire for pleasure that warn your members. The members he's talking about, the members of your body. That you are submitting yourself to the enemy. 
You are being a traitor to your faith by embracing worldly pleasures. Now again, the solution is not isolation, right? So the solution isn't, I'm going to go up and live in a monastery, and, and if I don't talk to anybody, then I can never slander anybody. <laughs> if I don't talk to anybody, I, I'll, I'll never say anything wrong. If I don't talk to anybody, right, I take a vow of silence, then I can't sin with my mouth. And James himself said that if anyone controls his tongue, he's a perfect man. But I also can't tell anybody about Jesus Christ and obey the command to go out and make disciples. I can't teach anyone the truth of Scripture either. You see the problem? You see, we can't fight that battle on the flesh's side. We have to fight it from a biblical perspective. And so we recognize there's a battle, and if I give any aid and comfort to my enemy, I am betraying my own spiritual life, and there I'm going to betray all these relationships around me. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that churches are so impersonal is because all of us know in our hearts that we have betrayed the relationships with God and therefore with each other because I've embraced worldliness. And I don't recognize them as the enemy. I am aiding and abetting the enemy. And thus I recognize I am a, I'm a traitor I'm a Benedict Arnold, I'm a Judas to my brothers in Christ. That every time I give help to the worldliness, to sin, and there are so many influences, I can't even begin to go there, that I need to eradicate out of my life. I need to abstain from them. Cold turkey, stop. that it is affecting my own Christian walk, and that has to affect my walk with God. That we humble ourselves and recognize that this is adult, this is spiritual adultery, that I'm playing around with this when I should be in covenant relationship with him. That's adultery. And James takes the other step to say, you're not just adulterers, you're adulteresses. Don't think this is just a male thing. You've coveted yourself to God, to Jesus Christ as your chief cornerstone. Recognize that within yourself, there is an enemy. And that enemy is your flesh. And you're at war there, and you need to set up some defenses. And one of the best defenses is to build the wall. And that means you're going to have to have people down this way and down this way and recognizing that I am, I am interdependent with the people of God to defend the righteousness of Christ among his people. That I need your help for me as much as you need my help in your life. But we don't think that way because we have personalized it to such a degree and we, have, we are shamed by our, our own traitorous acts towards the flesh that we aren't willing to just lay it out and say, I am really having a problem here. Because we're afraid of being judged, and so we'd rather just keep being a traitor to the cause of Christ. Keep being an adulterer. And so when Peter comes and says, I beg you, beloved, 
Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We're going to be looking at the impact upon the Gentiles next week in verse 12 and upon all men that honor all people of verse 17. But understand there's a warfare. And the warfare isn't between us. (laughs) It's not pastors versus their people. It's not husbands versus wives. It's not parents versus the children. That is not the war. The war is between righteousness and your flesh. And we all have that same exact battle going on. And shame on us for not recognizing that we should be helping one another in that battle, that I have weaknesses. Some of them I share with males, because I'm a man. Some of them are particular to me. And I need your help defending myself against those weaknesses. You have weaknesses. Areas of the flesh that you are, know that you are susceptible to falling to. You need help to set up those defenses. And the more we isolate ourselves, and this is why <laughs> James at the end here relates it to humility. Right? God gives grace to the humble. It is a humiliating thing to say, listen, I'm struggling with this, and, and it's having a negative impact on my walk with God and therefore a negative impact on my relationship with the saints. Help me. You're my brother in Christ, and, and maybe you're having problems in areas that I have no problems with. I'll be glad. We should be glad to lend that hand. Say, make no provisions for the flesh. All right, you're going to have to get this out of your life. You're going to have to get this and flush it. Just flush it. Abstain. If this is something that keeps creeping back in, then you need to flush it out. I don't care how dramatic that might be to you. Flush it out. Get rid of it. To abstain. And you might need help to do that. And that's what the church is supposed to be designed to do. Remember, we're a body of Christ, and we recognize that each one of us has assets that others don't that are necessary for the defense of the faith in the area of righteousness. And the end result is a church that is, first of all, more righteous in the end. It, it, it's, it's, it's a rough process. But the end result is a church that's more righteous. The end result is also a church that has a powerful testimony to the world. Right now, the church has a horrible testimony to the world, which tells us we're doing it wrong. The world says, you're full of hypocrites, and they're right. They're right. And the reason the church is full of hypocrites is because we don't know that the enemy isn't each other. It is our own flesh that wars against our spirit. And so we have lacked true, genuine fellowship that supports one another and exhorts and encourages, challenges, rebukes, corrects, uses God's word to just bring us to greater righteousness. This is what we are called to. And rightly does Peter beg his people for this. 
He begs them. James essentially begs you. You're not going to get any prayers answered because you're aiding and abetting the enemy. The enemy isn't the person you're fighting with. The enemy is the flesh that you're coddling in your daily life. Begin with personal righteousness, but recognize it's going to powerfully impact your relationships, both to affect personal righteousness and as the effect of personal righteousness will be upon your relationships. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We've not really spent enough time here uh, for all that your word describes in this area. But Lord, we pray that we have spent sufficient here to be rebuked and to be reconsidering. That we might humble ourselves before you and thank you so much for what you've done for us. We recognize that to really love one another and to be a testimony to this world we need up our game. That our spiritual walk needs to be defended against not just the world and the devil, but the flesh that we carry with us. Lord, we are weak in this area, all of us in some degree or another. We need your help, and we know that you've put this help here of your people, of your word, your spirit, that we have the resources available to us. Lord, help us to draw on those resources, not just neglect them. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.